it is this extraordinary experience in the sense of like it's extraordinary nobody goes out with a typewriter right people i've seen years later remember meeting me and often i remember them because the experience is so intense just for a couple minutes hello and welcome to arts in also known as ai the podcast produced by creative pinellas i'm barbara st Clair, your host and today i'm with cheryl oring Cheryl is an artist who does really interesting projects, many of which have to do with typewriters. That's right. Let me start with Writer's Block, the first large-scale art project that I made. I created it back in 1999 in Berlin, Germany, as a tribute to the authors whose books had been burned in Nazi Germany in 1933. The very first time that I went to Berlin was in 1996, and I went on a little study tour, and I walked down Unter den Linden, which is a really big boulevard in in the former East Berlin, on a very lonely, gray Sunday morning. Nobody was in sight, and I came across Babelplatz. Babelplatz, imagine like a large square surrounded by these really majestic buildings, and in the middle of the square, there was a window And when you looked into the window, you saw a white room lined with empty bookshelves. And it just, even now, it kind of gives me chills. The the work was made by Michel Ullman, who's an Israeli sculptor, and it was made as a memorial to the book burnings and, and to a remembrance of what had happened on that place in 1933. And about a year after that, I got a fellowship to go to Berlin, and I just kept winding up on Babelplatz. I would take a walk, not even headed there, and I would I would end up there, and I would think about what had happened, and I started researching the book burnings and trying to understand what had happened. It's, it's I think, to this day, incomprehensible. I, you know, it's, it's something that is, is impossible to understand, but I became interested in the writers, trying to understand their lives and what, the, what this event had also done to their lives and was interested in their exile stories. At the same time, I started seeing typewriters all over the city. And I bought one and, you know, loved it. I was a journalist at the time and I went on a a journalism fellowship. And so I was collecting these typewriters. And I think it's really important to say when we're talking about typewriters is they're the black and white manual. Right. I bought one and then I saw another and then I really wanted another. I think I probably bought another one. And then I kept seeing more and I wanted more. And I started imagining, you know, I'm like telling myself, you can't keep buying typewriters. You sure. (laughs) But they're really beautiful machines. I loved them. It was at a time when 10 years after the wall had fallen and people in East Berlin were cleaning out their houses and apartment buildings were being renovated and all this stuff was showing up at flea markets all over the city. So I knew there were a lot of typewriters in people's basements. (laughs) And and I thought, what, what would I do if I had a lot of typewriters? That's sort of in one way how the project started. You know, the one thing was my obsession with Babelplatz and the history and then these typewriters. And then I thought, well, actually, the first idea would was sort of lining the square with typewriters, but they're very small and the square is very big. And then I also started noticing the construction steel mm-hmm. that was all over the city at the time because the city was being renovated, massively changing the landscape of the city through construction projects. Because before when it was East Berlin and the wall was, it was sort of stuck in time in a weird way, right? That's right. And then after the wall came down, there was a lot of renovation happening and there were construction cranes all over the city and this construction rebar I I seem to also see and it's this rusty also very beautiful metal 
and I saw it and thought, okay, somehow just the idea of a cage came to mind. Mm -hmm. This metal seemed like it could be a cage. And then I thought, well, what if I put typewriters in cages? So that's how the idea was born. But that's easier said than done, right? I mean, I was subletting an apartment in in Berlin. My German was very mediocre. I had taken high school German and a couple years in college, but I was by no means fluent. But I thought there was a basement in my apartment building. I had access to like a little storage basement thing. So I started co- getting more typewriters, buying more typewriters. But then someone fa- someone knew. I started telling people I'm doing this thing. I want to make this thing. And someone found a cellar full of old typewriters oh. that were just like disgusting, like really dirty. And, and they said I could have them, you know. And so I, you know, got people to help me move these dirty old typewriters to, the, to my cellar. <laughs> And then there was a construction site a few blocks from the apartment where I was living. And I, you know, it's like all these old German men in like construction overalls. And I, you know, marched over to the site and in my really bad German asked if I could have some steel. (laughs) (laughs) And could they cut it in six square pieces for me? I was trying to explain what I wanted to make. And. And I think they were so amused at this woman, like just like coming onto their construction <laughs> With poor site. German yeah, it's really bad. They they made six pieces of construction rebar cut down in squares for me, and I had no car. You know, I had nothing at that time. I, by hand, I carried these pieces like one by one over to where the apartment was, and then in the courtyard of that building. I cobbled together a sculpture, meaning I didn't weld the steel together. I used metal wire to mm-hmm. kind of wind, you know, make form, make the form and put the typewriters in there and then photographed it. And that photograph of, of that very temporary sculpture, because I just made it one day and took it apart, became what I used to explain my idea to mm-hmm. people. I, I mean, I ended up getting amazing support in Berlin. I had a marketing company that sponsored the project, meaning they let me use their office and they made a website for me. They held a press conference announcing that I needed typewriters. All these people started donating typewriters. I had no money. I had nothing, you know, really. And I didn't even have a place to store them. But then they helped me get find a developer who let me use a space that was not quite finished yet. So for six months, I had a free studio. Wow. And ultimately, the big coup, I got Daimler Chrysler to give me a Mercedes to drive around the city and collect the typewriters. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was really incredible that, that, that they donated the car for a few months. And then I had all sorts of people helping me. You know, Berlin was a very particular place at the time. It was really, really affordable to live. Apartments were like three or 400 a month for a small apartment. And artists didn't necessarily have to have full-time jobs to survive. So people had time much more than they do now. So I had a lot of people coming to help me. There was one man, he was a Turkish man originally from Turkey, who I met at a flea market. He was selling typewriters. He was selling office equipment, but he had a few typewriters. He became so enchanted with the project that he would always come to the studio and help. He helped me find some people who did welding. So then ultimately, there was another construction company that donated a whole huge amount of steel. So I also became, as I was researching the book burnings, I was also interested in the fact that the Nazis were also banning music and dance. And so I ended up working with a choreographer, Summer Ulrichsen, and a composer, Ari Benjamin Myers, who made a dance piece to original music that debuted on the first show of this as well. But the work, it almost didn't happen, right? Because I had this grand idea and I had all these people helping me and I had asked the city for a permit to, you know, to show this on the square and I, I wasn't getting an answer. 
it had already been in the press a fair amount through this typewriter collection action. And ultimately, you know, I went to the city office where I'd submitted the form and they had never answered. And finally, the guy said, well, this is really off the record, but this kind of scares us. Mm. You know, this is this is in the former East Germany. It was all former East Germans who were staffing the city office and they were oh, they sure. were worried sure. that it might incite some sort of neo Nazi protest or that there might be some kind of action that would not be good and, and so ultimately they denied it and they told me I couldn't couldn't do it. And I was pretty, I was stumped for, for a short time. And then I thought, well, you know, the press has always been my friend. So I went to one of the newspapers who had re- reported about the typewriter collecting and told the reporter, you know, the city's denied this. I'm not going to be able to do this. And that reporter wrote a story. Oh, wow. And the next day, the city changed their mind and agreed that I could do it. But I had originally asked to show it for a few weeks. And they said I could do it, but only for 24 hours. Oh, my goodness. I think probably the biggest mistake of my life was actually living by that. So I don't know what they would have. I, I did leave it there for 24 hours. So we had a semi truck that took the sculptures to and, the and to the place. I think it's probably important to point out that there's 18. There were 21 at the time. And they weigh 700 pounds. Yes, yes, they do weigh 700 pounds. <laughs> and they're three, three cubic feet. So moving something like that in and out in 24 hours is is right. That whole end of that project, I was not. I was barely sleeping, not eating that much. I was just. It was an incredible undertaking that now when I look back, I'm like, how did I do that? You know, how did I actually do this? I grew up, the Berlin Wall was there, and this feeling that we would be a divided world forever. And then when that wall came down, just as if, you know, there was this, like a pressure cooker taking the lid off a pressure cooker in my own heart. So when you were describing all the people coming to help you, I'm sensing that freedom and that joy and that that release of creativity Mm -hmm. and sort of intense passion and compassion and that sense of freedom. And then Mm -hmm. when you describe the permit people evoking that old way of being. And so you sort of got to experience that change. And then we're kind of recording it and building it in your artwork at the same time. Absolutely. You know, this was not that long after the wall had had come down. It was 98, 99 when I was working on this. So it was 10 years. And yeah, what you described, that 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 hope, yeah. that was such a particular yeah. feeling and, and moment in history. And, and I think it took a while. They didn't <clears throat> unfreeze instantly. Right. Right. So the writer's block piece debuted on the anniversary of the book burning, which was May 10th. And when the actual book burnings happened, it was a very rainy, damp night, and it took them a long time to start the fires. Mm. And the night that the show was on Babelplatz, it actually started just pouring as the dance was happening. And it really was a it, it was an incredible night. There were about maybe three or four hundred people there. And they all took their umbrellas out and just stayed in wow. the in a downpour and watched this performance. It was it's sort of indescribable. It was a, it's a very special feeling. And and I was fortunate. There were a lot of people, you know, people I knew. And the head of the Jewish Museum was there, Tom Freudenheim, and he ended up inviting me to show the work at the Jewish Museum Berlin, which was really an honor. The the museum is just this amazing piece of architecture and institution. And so a few months after that, the work was shown there for a few weeks, and the dance and and music was performed again. Ended up taking it to Budapest and ended up going to Boston and then to Bryant Park in New York. 
you know, at the time, the park had not shown that much art. So there was a long conversation around that. The park is totally different today. You know, mm-hmm. it's so vibrant and has so much art and different things in it. But I worked with Penn, the Writers Organization, and the National Coalition Against Censorship. The work was shown during something called Banned Books Week. And Banned Books Week calls attention to books that have been banned in this country most often in schools. So that was in 2003. And then I was utterly exhausted, really, yeah. just you know, sort of at the end and everything, went, it went into storage. I had no money again. You know, it was like, took everything I had to make this happen. And I was asking around, you know, where, where could I store these things? And a friend had a friend who had a barn in Pennsylvania. And so the sculptures went into this barn. I was working with a lot of organizations that deal with First Amendment rights and free speech issues. Mm -hmm. So there was an organization in the San Francisco area that invited me out. They wanted to talk about bringing writer's block out there, but they weren't sure they had the money. And and if you have any other ideas, let us know, you know, something that might be less expensive than moving these giant sculptures across country. You know, I was a journalist. I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, I worked at the New York Times briefly. I worked at several newspapers in Germany. And I was intrigued with this idea of the person on the street interview. George Bush was going out for re-election. And so I said, well, you know, I, I, what if I went out with a typewriter and asked people to send a postcard to, to the president? And they loved the idea. So they organized a couple of locations, one in San Francisco and one in Oakland. And I got all dressed up in sort of, you know, secretary clothing right. and started this project called I Wish to Say. So in a sense, writer's block, you know, was about censorship, and I was just, I was sort of the antithesis of that. And Both about voice and speaking and right. having the ability to express yourself and have that expression gain the freedom to reach somebody. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, when I started, I wish to say it was in conjunction with this organization called the First Amendment Project. I had no and no idea what it would become, right? I typed on two occasions. The response was fantastic. People were lining up and waiting to dictate their postcards. And I do want to point out again, it's it's the typewriter. Yes. There's this, with the sound right. it makes, the click, click, click. and Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, they're really, yes, beautiful old machines. And so that year, 2004, it was election year. And again, I had no money, like zero money. But I found very inexpensive ways to travel. I took the, you know, the Chinatown buses around the East Coast. I had a friend who was doing a book tour and she didn't want to drive. So she said, you know, I'll organize everything and I'll have places for us to stay. But you just have to come along and drive and then you can do your typing events along the way. So I did, did a tour through the Southwest with my friend Stephanie Elizondo Greist. Then the the Republican National Convention was in New York, and I went all over New York City while the convention was happening. And this is still dressed kind of like a secretary. You would set up a table, Mm -hmm. set up your typewriter. Did you have some signs or anything that told people what you were doing? I had so I I had a flag as a backdrop. I've changed a little bit since. Now I have something that looks like a flag, but it actually says "I wish to say now." That's one of the few small changes from the beginning. And then I had a desk, a little typing table. I had rubber stamps. So and I I use carbon paper. So people come up, I ask them, if I were the president, what would you wish to say to me? Or sometimes I just say, would you like to send a postcard to the president? And then they say what they'd like to say. I type them. I give them the original, stamped and addressed and ready to send to the White House. Wow. And I keep the carbon copy. I went up to Boston for the Democratic National Convention. And it started getting a little bit of, of traction, you know, a little bit of attention in the press. and. Sure. Peter Jennings made me his person of the week. <laughs> it was really incredible during that Republican National Convention week. 
Then a couple of years later, I started getting some grant support for the project. I got a creative capital grant. I got some money from the New York Foundation for the Arts, and that allowed the work to continue, and it's continued to this so day. So how many letters would you guess? How many letters to the president? About 4,000. 4,000. Mm-hmm. From all over the country? From hundreds of locations. So the person who has participated in I Wish to Say, they have the, the envelope and the stamp, and I wonder how many of them keep that, or how many of them actually mm-hmm. stick it in the mailbox. Right, and I have no way of knowing. Right. Each person who participates, they have that experience, but then they can either, they can choose their next experience with that. Yes, and I I have had people tell me, oh, I still have it, and then I've I've had people tell me, oh, they photographed it, and then they sent it off. So, you know, I, I was just reading through some of the cards that I typed this fall, and there was a young woman at a college in, in Virginia who was nervous to participate. I could see in line, as she was waiting to, to come up to my desk, I could see she was a little bit nervous, and I, you know, asked her how she was doing, and... She said that that the policies that this government was making regarding the wall, she was an immigrant, she came from an immigrant family in Mexico, and she said that it just made her feel like she didn't have a home. And then a few people after her, there was a, a another young woman, a student, who who told me, it was actually on the day of that Christine Ford testified in the Kavanaugh hearings this mm-hmm. fall. So this young woman said that she had just found out that her sister had been raped when she was 15. And she just wanted to let people know that there are many reasons that people don't report things like this. So a lot of times they tie to the news of the day and -hmm. they reflect what's happening, often from a really personal point of view. actually have a, a new piece or a relatively new piece what did I let slide right so the series is called Agitype and it was created for the show that I did this fall at Ringling College with Mark Ormond and a great crew down there so it started with Mark actually asking me we were thinking about what should the title of the show be and it was a show that looked back on 20 years of work and um, of your work of my work yes 20 years of my work and mark asked me to think about a word that would describe the work to maybe make up a word so i came up with the word agitate and thought that was the perfect description of what i do sort of agitating things through type and then it became the title of one of the works in the show which actually don't use typewriters it's the first <laughs> Hmm. One of the first things I've done without typewriters for a very long time, but it references journalism in a, in a way. So I took quotes from stories about the Me Too movement and using stencils with Helvetica type, large, four inch large, I made um, what looked like newspaper headlines with quotes. So the I Wish to Say project basically created a framework of working, which is me with a typewriter posing a question. The question is always really integral to the work as well. I created I Wish to Say in 2004. The following year, there were two projects that I did using that framework. One was if I were chancellor, I went back to Germany and toured around and had people send postcards to their chancellor candidate of their choice. But then I worked in New York on a piece called Writing Home. I set up in the Eldridge Street Project, which is a former synagogue on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in a neighborhood that used to be a Jewish neighborhood and now is a a Chinese neighborhood, uh, still very much a neighborhood of immigrants, and asked people if they would like to send a letter to their ancestor, Mm. one of their ancestors. And it was very open. They could send to someone who was no longer with us or someone who was still alive. and, And again, they took a copy with them and I, I kept a copy. 
And it was very emotional, very intensely emotional. People writing letters to their long-lost grandmother, or I just remember one letter by a man who um, had left his home in China and had never had a chance to see his father again. So mm. had these very emotional mm -hmm. letters. In 2011, I was asked by Bryant Park, so at this point I'd been working in Bryant Park in New York quite a bit. I'd had writer's block there, I'd done I Wish to Say there. So their events director contacted me and said, you know, the 10th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up and we were wondering if you had any thoughts on doing something in the park. So I ended up proposing this work called Collective Memory. And the question for that was, what would you like the world to remember about 9-11? Mm -hmm. I worked with a large group of typists in New York. I had 10 typists set up on a really long white table. It was about 70 feet long, right behind the New York Public Library. And we were there for three days in a row, typing up people's memories and thoughts. And it, it was also a very, one of them very emotional and some of them were very poetic, like the, talking about the light, or one woman was talking about how when she got home, her daughter took her first steps. Wow. You know, so there was this contrast of this utter disaster and yeah. death and chaos yeah. and then life, you know, new life. So there were these very poignant stories that people told. How So you had a 70-foot table and, and 10 typists? Yes. How did you recruit your typists? And what made you decide to make it multiple typists instead of just you this time? Several things. So I wanted it to be more visible. So sure. the scale is, if it's just myself, you can get lost in the big, it's a very different thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm not even sure which I prefer. They're very different. When it's just me, it's very private. But the typists were far enough apart that there was still privacy with the person dictating. I recruited typists every way I could. You know, I have, you know, Facebook, friends and then the park put things on their Facebook. Because they become part of the installation, they become part of the artwork. Absolutely, yes. When you're working as a typist, you're listening and you're taking in all of this emotion and it was such a intense experience. There were a few men who participated. It's, it's often mostly women, but there were a few guys who, who volunteered as typists on this project. And one of the young men was saying, you know, there was a woman who, who came up to his desk and, and she knew, she, she had heard about the project and she had come specifically, she had lost her brother on 9-11. And... You know, she started crying in the course of doing her card. And then he was thinking, like, can I actually do this? Like, can I can I keep typing with this intense emotion, you know, for like a few hours? He wasn't sure. But then he he did it and he, and he felt at the end like it was such a service that he had done, you know, for, mm -hmm. for New Yorkers and that mm -hmm. he was really happy to have to have been part of that. So, yes, it, it, it is. It becomes this kind of collective experience. Yeah. You know, it it, it is this extraordinary experience in the sense of like it's extraordinary it's it's nobody goes out with a typewriter right nobody gets dressed up in these this clothing and so when people either encounter it because i've also had people i've seen years later who remember meeting me and and often i remember them because the experience is so intense just for a couple minutes but it has some impact Your activities are part of what has been a redefinition of public art. Well, yes, absolutely. And there's this idea about the ephemeral and the role of the ephemeral in public art. Does public art have to be a big sculpture, right? Does it have to be a massive thing that's there forever? 
So I've done a couple public art commissions, one at the San Diego airport and one I'm still finishing up here at the Tampa airport. And they combine the ephemeral with something more permanent. Greetings from Tampa Bay started with a series of performances around the Bay where I asked people to tell me a story about their city. And then I took the type messages and scanned them in and they're printed out on aluminum. And I also spent a lot of time here a couple of years back taking Polaroid photos around the region. And those photos are also being printed on aluminum. And I'm making basically a 3D collage, photo collage, if you could imagine that, with the stories tied in. And that will ultimately be at the Tampa airport. How has the arts community or the public that is engaging with public mm-hmm. art, how, how have they responded to that notion of that it's the experience rather than the thing? Well... I'm not sure I can answer that because the people who have commissioned me, I think, are very interested in that. And then, of course, there are many commissions I don't get. So I think that I'm sensing that there's still some sort of a divide. There's still maybe some programs where they're really most interested in the monumental or the more permanent things that are maybe less, a little bit less idea-driven. But I am sensing that there are people out there who are very interested in what I'm doing, particularly in the way that it engages the community. And so I think that the work that I'm doing has this public input in the very creation of the work. And for some places, that's very, very compelling. It seems to me that you're very interested in memory. Mm -hmm. First, I thought that the biggest thematic trend in your work was typewriters. Mm -hmm. But then I was thinking what you're really doing a lot is giving people the opportunity to get in touch with their memories and share their memories. Absolutely, yes. And I think I think it stems from my interest in history and thinking about the way memories can impact us. And even the choice of typewriters, I you love the machines. Oh, know? absolutely. Right, but <laughs> yes. if you think about, they're a memory mnemonic because people don't use typewriters anymore. Right. And then each machine kind of holds the memory of whatever was typed on it, so it has this evocative feeling, I guess. And if it has a ribbon in it, that actually could be physically true. Right. Absolutely. Yes. And the and the platen to the roll. Sure. So there's sure. this there's this physical evidence of what, what what it was used for. So you are a professor now. Yeah, so I teach art at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And in the last few, well, going back to a few years, I've included students in some of the projects. In 2016, I was working again at Bryant Park, and this time in conjunction with the Penn World Voices Festival. And I wanted to do a massive version of I Wish to Say in the park. So what I ended up doing was I had 20 typing stations set up throughout the park so people could send uh, messages to the candidate of their choice. It was the primary season. And Penn had thought that they might be able to find a bunch of writers who would serve as the typists. And they did find some, but it ended up being hard. I, w- I needed about 100 volunteers wow, for this project. Wow. It was huge. It was really, really big. I, I was like, why don't I just take students? This would be an amazing experience for them. So I went to my department head at the time and said, you know, I'm planning this really big project in, in New York. And 
could you pay for a bus to take <laughs> up, you know, a bunch of students to New York and like get them a hotel because I need them there a few days and have them, you know, work as volunteers and type us on this project. It was right at the end of the semester. It was right before finals and there was like a waiting list. I mean, people were really, really excited to go and, and they were doing it for no credit, but the university sponsored the bus and got them a hotel for one night. So they, it was a kind of a crazy trip. I think they went overnight bus ride, did the practice, did a hotel, stay in the hotel, did the real thing, another overnight bus ride. So <laughs> they, they didn't get much sleep. And we were, I was training them, you know, for months, they would come into my studio and practice typing, you know, 60 students, they signed up for jobs, they could be typists, they could document the project, they could interact with the public and tell them what was happening, or they could help with logistics. So they all had a job and assignments. There was one young man who I'd never met before. He was an art education student. He wanted to be a teacher. And people were typing throughout the park, but we also had an area with a mic. And then as things were typed, the cards were brought to this area and I had people signed up to do readings. So there was a little little place with seating and the cards were being read. And it needed some organization. And he just took over. He totally stepped up. I'd never met him before. He kind of took on a leadership role within this little project. And the trip just really enchanted him with the work. And and he, he ended up starting to volunteer with me, did an internship with me. And then he was doing student teaching in, in my town. And he asked if it would be okay if he did the project in the school, which of course I was very excited about. He performed the project in, in one of the schools where he was student teaching. And now he's a middle school teacher and he's doing the project with his kids in a middle school in North Carolina. That, that work never would have happened if he hadn't happened to come along on this bus trip to New right. York. So I know that these these experiences can have transformative effects on young people, and I'm excited about that. You know, people don't always love this work. They sometimes think it's very political. I mean, it, it is political, but it also is open enough that anybody can participate, anybody can speak their mind. Sometimes people encounter it and get worried about it. So his principal at his new school was concerned about him doing this project. And he totally explained it and stood up to him and was like, no, this is about the students. This is exactly it. This is about the students finding their voice. And there's nothing better that we can do for them. He's working in a very challenged school, a school where like every child gets free lunches, meaning the income mm-hmm. level is very low. And, and he's like, these, these students in particular really need to express themselves, and I'm giving them a way to do that with with this project. Art has a maybe a has a little more freedom to do things that other other means of expression may not. So I, that's in a way why I've settled on it. it. Kind of has the least restrictions on what you can do. I am so thrilled that you are here with us in Pinellas County for Writer's Block that is at the Gallery at Creative Pinellas and I really appreciate this conversation. Well thank you so much for inviting me. It's totally our pleasure. I've been here with Cheryl Oring and we've been talking about her artwork and the importance of having the ability to not only wish to say something, but to be able to say it. Thank you so much, Barbara. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.